Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Pushing the Limits. Today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Alan Barnard. He is one of the world's leading decision scientists and theory of constraints experts. Um, he is also the founder and CEO of Goldrat Research Labs, and he also works as a strategy advisor and researcher and theory of constraints experts. Some of his clients have included Microsoft, Nike, Penguin Random House, just to name a few. I actually just need to catch my breath because that's a lot to say. But welcome, Dr. Alan Barnard. It's so nice to have you on an episode today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be invited, Giselle. It's amazing because, you know, like we were saying earlier, this is completely out of my realm in terms of expertise. I've never spoken to someone, you know, who has this kind of background. Um, what made you get into, you know, these things? What What's your passion for what you want to achieve? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in South Africa. We, we didn't have much resources, you know, but we had a really good life and uh, spent a lot of time on the farm and was close to my uh, grandfather. And he was the one that encouraged me to read a lot because I was always curious. I kept on asking questions, questions, questions. And my most treasured times was sitting, you know, very early in the morning with him at a fire, drinking coffee and just being able to ask continuous questions. So he encouraged me to read. And I, I, uh, one of the things he said is, if you want to become successful in life, you should study successful people. So I started reading up a, a lot about autobiographies and biographies. And the one thing that struck me very quickly was how most successful people actually had pretty bad starting conditions, you know, um, and that somehow this didn't limit them to achieve their success. And I became very curious about how can that be? How can some people with really bad starting conditions end up being extremely successful? I mean, whether those bad starting conditions are just that you're really poor, that your parents aren't educated, maybe you were in a house that were really bad, there was a lot of neglect and abuse, or maybe you had some disabilities, learning disabilities or even physical disabilities, and yet these people succeeded. And then others, in fact, most others that had pretty good starting conditions just didn't. And, and that got me down this route of really understanding why. And my first big discovery was in the Reader's Digest. You know, this was the old sort of thing that we used to read, right? Um, those small little booklets. And I read this article about Henry Ford that was a prime example of how somebody that had, you know, very, very limiting starting conditions um, just kept on going and then actually quite late on in his life became really successful, you know, with, a, with a, the, the build of the Model T Ford card. But there was one quote that he gave me that just changed my life, which is, I read it and it said, whether you believe you can do something or can't, you're right. Mm -hmm. and, and that really, really impacted me because what I realized was what if it's really not the starting conditions that matter so much? Of course, having not great starting conditions is going to make life much more difficult, right? There's no doubt about that. You're going to have to overcome obstacles. And I think we all have those, right? doesn't matter who you are. There's some labor, major limitations and obstacles that you're going to have to overcome. But what I realize is what, what if it's not the starting conditions that matter so much, but much more your starting assumptions about whether you believe in yourself, whether you believe you can do something or not. And that's kind of what set me on this path 
and it, it turned I turned that into a life goal of that what I wanted to focus on was to help myself and other people first of all see the inherent potential that they have in them and then secondly provide them with simple methods to unlock that potential to realize their full potential that's amazing so I'm assuming you've read Napoleon Hill's books and Dale Carnegie's and yes of course when you mentioned Henry Ford that's the first thing I thought about is in those books they both talk about how you know um a lot of these successful people came from really rough backgrounds like poverty and they just had this this one goal and they just believed they could do it and they just a lot of them worked for a long time without compensation knowing that it'll come like patience hard work um so that's that's also something i have noticed and it it also gets me thinking um when people go through challenges when people have to really work hard to get what they want do you think that actually allows people to develop character and do you think it's necessary to go through that stuff in order to be successful i i i i mean sometimes i wish it wasn't right <laughs> you sometimes wish that life was a little bit easier you know um, but I had a, a great mentor that I met early on in my life, Dr. Ellie Goldratt, and that, uh, you know, we co-founded our research lab. And he, he always said, you know, whenever somebody was complaining, he said, what do you want? You want an easy life? Is, is that what you want? He said, you know, take a big hammer, hit yourself over the head. You know, they'll bring food to your, to your bed. You know, that, that's an easy life. That's not what we want. We want, we want a full and meaningful life. And I suspect that there's, if you study biology, you know, what happens if you break your bone, right? Is it doesn't just recover, it sort of compensates, right? It, it's almost like it's anticipating, it gets stronger when you break your bone, right? The same with muscles, right? You go into the gym and you train. What you're practically doing is you're damaging the muscle and the repair of the muscle is compensating it's like this dude is crazy. He's going to keep on. I better make it stronger, right? So there's something there about, you know, this concept of what doesn't kill you, make you stronger. Uh, there's a great book that has been written about that called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. Um, he's the one that wrote Black Swan and Fooled by Randomness. But in there, he describes this mechanism that has evolved in biological systems, that is allowing you to constantly benefit from volatility, for basically from negative and positive stresses. So your body is compensating for that all the time. So it doesn't just recover, it actually recovers at a higher level, and that's how you get stronger, right? Um, so I think that there's something true in that in the human psyche as well, is that when we face obstacles and you then overcome those obstacles, you benefit massively from it. So I think you're absolutely right. I think it's that's one of the primary mechanisms under evolution. It allows us to evolve as species, but also as human beings, as that ability to overcome obstacles. Do you think that is um, primarily a human trait, because, or do you think other animals have that as well, or maybe no, not? No, all, all, all living all living organisms basically have it in order to to evolve, right? If you think about what 
this this basic mechanism of evolution, right? It's constantly that organism has got two primary objectives. One, sort of survive and thrive. That's, you know, so the survival part is it's constantly encountering obstacles and it has to adapt or die. That's as literal as that, right? But that adaptation is what makes it stronger and more robust and more resilient all the time. If it if it didn't have that, and the first time it encountered an obstacle, it would just die. You know that uh, species won't survive very long, whether it's a, a single cell organism or a massively complex organism like human beings. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because you know um, I'm doing my honors in psychology, and the one thing I've always been interested in is children, child psychology. And I speak about it a lot to to Trav, my boyfriend. And, you know, I feel sometimes that when parents are too easy on their children, it doesn't allow them to go through those challenges and develop certain things that will prepare them, um, you know, for the future, for the, for the real world. And the one thing I always think about is that if you come from quite um, not even an affluent family, but a family – they're comfortable, you do well, you don't really have to go through, you know, those challenges and stuff. How do you then teach those lessons to your children? You know, those lessons of you need to go through hardships, you need to learn this, like this will make you grow. If something goes wrong, you can't always come to me to fix it. You know, how do you think that's important to do and how how would you even do it? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of anxiety around parents about whether they're being good parents and are they overprotective or not. But I think at a very practical level, if you can imagine, if you didn't allow your kids to be exposed at all to any germs, bacteria, viruses, right, they wouldn't build up the immune system to be able to deal with that. And you know, when when their bodies are healthy and robust and easily adaptable, etc., when they're kids, that's the best time to build up that immune system, right? It's being able to fend off those things when they happen. So I think that there is a there is a big part of that is that we are, we need to allow kids to be able to fail, right? I mean, if if I think about how we grew up, right, it's just it's just it's a type of thing that probably our parents would have today would be arrested for child neglect, right? Because we did our own things. I mean, if you were naughty, they beat the crap out of you, right? <laughs> so that was the one side, right? But those lessons you learned, right? Today, we don't do that, you know? We used to get beaten all the time, like six of the best at the, at the school if you did something wrong, right? And and we had this whole cottage industry developing about hot fella, you know, sort of protection for your hindsight because you could be beaten up all the time. And it, it, to me, it's always been a curious part is to say the person that you are today, is that despite those things or is it because of it? You know, and, and that to me is a very interesting question. I, I don't have a really good answer. But what I what I do know is that when we have those challenges, when we when we have those uh, those disabilities that we that we succeed in overcoming, you know, it really changes who we are. You know, and there's some good good uh, uh, evidence now about how we can actually change to some extent what is in our DNA, the, the, the part that sits on top of the DNA, which is basically activating certain switches. So there is a way that we can actually change our genes up to a point. And I think these challenges as part of that mechanism is when you face those challenges, you develop mechanisms to overcome it. Um, and, and that makes you stronger as you go on. Well, I guess that's basically evolution taking place. And it's it's so interesting because I read 
two books now and I've read some articles, completely unrelated topics, completely unrelated authors, everything. And the one book I read was called Altered Altered Traits. I don't know if you've read that one um, no. about meditation and how if you find purpose in your life, it actually extends your um, your DNA because you are telling your body, I need more time to, to do what I need to do. So then your body's yeah. like, okay, we'll just make you live longer then. And I read that in that book. And then I'm reading a book now called Blue Zone Solutions where um, this one researcher went to five different countries in the world where they had um, people who lived way over 100. And he wanted to identify nutrition-wise, lifestyle-wise, why they're living so long. And again, purpose came up. If you have purpose, you actually grow your DNA cells and you live longer. Yeah. Um, I thought that was that was so interesting and and talking about you know the, the hardships and everything the one thing I have always lived by and I, I don't know if it's something I was taught when I was really young or if it's something I just developed but ever since I was a kid I always said to myself everything happens for a reason so if it's a bad thing it's a lesson if it's a good thing enjoy it and yeah. honestly because of that mindset you know, I, I've been through a lot of challenges in my life, just like everyone has, but I don't regret any of it because I made sure that I learned from it and that I, I, I took something away from that that I could either change or that I could grow and expand. And that for me has made me who I am. I didn't, I, I, I really try and avoid that whole victim mindset. And that's what I wanted to ask you. How important is it to avoid that mix, that victim mindset? It's a, it's a really interesting question. I had one of the, the moments that I will remember for the rest of my life was uh, in 1994, you know, the sanctions was lifted in South Africa. And there was a, an opportunity to have the first African Arab trade fair. And Tabo uh, um, Mbeki at the time, was asked by Nelson Mandela to put together a, a group of South Africans to go and represent South Africa to celebrate the fact that the, the sanctions was lifted. And, uh, you know, there was a discharted flight and I was w very fortunate to be invited to, to participate in this through the company I was working with at the time. But just before we left, we had the amazing opportunity to meet Nelson Mandela. And... Um, we were given an opportunity, some of us were given an opportunity to ask him a question. And the question I asked him was that, you know, he's he said so many things that have inspired so many people and have changed the way that they, that they look at the world. And I asked him whether there was something that somebody else had told him that had a similar profound impact on his life. And he, he recalled a story where in the... Um, very early 1970s, I believe, when uh, Chief Albert Latuli was president of the ANC and he finally retired and he gave the speech at the end and uh, um, he basically gave, them, gave the ANC a warning. He said, you know, there are many goals that you set that, that feels impossible, right? Um, but one day the ANC will likely be in power. It might take a long time, but that will happen. Uh, it's almost inevitable. But he left them with a warning. He said, I want to warn you that as long as you think of yourself as victims, you will become the next victimizers. This is one of the profound truths in life 
is that when you think of yourself as a victim and you then are put into a situation of power, it's very often that the victim becomes the victimizer. So that's the one element, and that, that really stuck with me for a very, very long time. Um, it's almost like what we've seen in our research labs is when we are studying decision-making, which is now the area that I'm focusing on, right? As we talked about this inherent potential and how important the assumptions beliefs are. Well, those assumptions and beliefs are informing decisions that we are making on a daily basis, right? The majority of those decisions are taking place in the subconscious mind. There's a few that takes place in the conscious mind. It's the difference between intuition and cognition. But that, that assumption about whether you view yourself as a victim has a profound impact on the type of decisions that we make in life, right? It's, and, and one of the things that we've learned is that when we study decision-making, for example, if you're interested to understand why somebody would become a bully, right, whether that's a, a, somebody that is physically bullying somebody else or, or maybe cyberbullying, why is that? Because, you know, ultimately people are good, but good people make bad decisions all the time, right? And it, it's not about, you know, finding these bad people and getting rid of them. It's helping to understand what are the bad assumptions that they have and helping them to get rid of those bad assumptions. And one of the interesting things that we've observed is that we always are learning from experience, right? Sometimes we learn the right lessons. Sometimes we learn the wrong lessons. This is part of our evolution. And one of the really bad lessons that we can learn is do it to them before they do it to you. Right. And you can see that sort of a, some people are very healthy when it comes to competition and others are not that healthy. Right. They, they whenever they get an opportunity, they want to crush the opponent. They want to crush people because that's unfortunately one of the subconscious lessons that they've learned is do it to them before they do it to you. Do you think, sorry to interrupt, do you think that's because they're assuming that what they're thinking is what the other person is thinking? Uh I think it's just a protection mechanism. You know, one of our biggest Achilles heels in our life are mechanisms that we develop to cope with life's challenges mm -hmm. and mechanisms that we develop to protect ourselves from life's challenges, right? And and sort of do it to them before they do it to you as one of those protection mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really protect you. Mm -hmm. It harms you in the end. It's almost like the same thing in a relationship, right? There's a, a level of healthy jealousy. You want your partner to be a little bit jealous, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but not too much. Yeah. Right? Now, from their perspective, why are they jealous? What would be the unique upside for them in being jealous? Is that they think it will protect the relationship from being broken up. But they don't realize that when they go when it goes above a point, it's doing the opposite. Right, it's showing the other person that you really don't trust them, and I think that same mechanism is also true in sport. You know, whether it's an individual sport or team sport, as thinking of yourself as a victim of your circumstances is not a great start in life, right? Because you'll always find reasons to blame. Right? It's it's those people that, despite those reasons find a way of overcoming it. I had a, uh, I've been very privileged to have been invited to, to Necker Island, uh, Sir Richard Branson's Island twice. And one of the discussions I had with him 
was I asked him, you know, is was there a point that he realized that these disabilities that he was suffering from, because he had a really hard time. You've probably read about that at school. He really struggled. He always, he said he felt stupid all the time. He couldn't get it, couldn't understand what they were talking about. And I asked him if there was a point that he realized that that, what he thought was a disability could be overcome. And he said to me, yes, it was when he started noticing that when he was studying or reading about something that he was passionate about, Somehow the dyslexia doesn't affect him that much, right? And I think that's like a profound thing for all of us is to say, as you were mentioning, if you have a goal, right, that you're really passionate about, that you care about, that's going to make life a little bit easier, (laughs) right? Whereas if you're trying to do something that you don't care about or you don't know what you're going to do, then life is not going to be that easy. But it's having that, that goal that you really care about. And I think what that does is it creates that sort of inconsistency, that that gap between what you want to achieve and where you are. Mm-hmm. And you are lucky if that 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 energy from that gap is almost like a force, right, can inspire you forward. For some people, it causes anxiety and stress, and they, they play the victim, right? They just give up. They start lowering their expectations, et cetera. So I think that's one of the most important things that we can teach kids from early on is to find those few things that you're really passionate about, right? And what you'll find is that whatever obstacles you normally face, whatever disabilities you might have, it'll become a lot easier to overcome it when you have a clear goal about something that you're really passionate about. Yeah, it's almost like that Albert Einstein quote. I can't remember how it goes word for word, but it's like if you make a fish climb a tree or something, then they're going to have a hard time. But if it's in the water, you know, so and it's actually so interesting because yesterday I was busy getting ready for an Instagram live and I was just thinking, like, why? Why do people feel fear? you know, what is the purpose of it? And I didn't have a lot of time to like Google it and read into it. And I just quickly Googled it. And it said, it's just a mechanism to prepare you for the task ahead. And I thought to myself, like, that's so amazing, because you are you are doing a task, and sometimes you feel this fear. And whichever way you interpret it, you know, if you interpret it in a positive way, saying, this is just my body getting ready for me, to attack this and do well, then you'll succeed and, and you'll progress. But if you interpret it as, oh, I'm scared because I'm not, I, I can't actually um, do what I need to do. I don't have the right skills or tools. Then you actually, you, you know, digress. And I was thinking it would be so amazing to kind of change people's view of fear, you know, instead of viewing it as as something positive instead of something negative. Yeah, I think that there's uh, there's two types of fears that we have. The one is the it's again it's a kind of a protection mechanism, right? But it's trying to protect us from two types of events. The first event is that you have a fear about doing something like public speaking, right? So what are we trying to protect ourselves against? It's not that we're gonna die. Is that we will feel that we are dying, right? <laughs> when we're standing, when we're standing there, and we are literally dying of embarrassment, right? It's 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 that visceral visceral 
that it feels like we need to protect ourselves against this because emotionally we die. But you're not really going to die. You're going to be a little bit embarrassed. And and most audiences are really, you know, helping people, right? When you see somebody stumble, they start clapping or cheering. You've got this, you know. So, But there's this fear that we have to speak in public. And really what the purpose of that fear is, is to prepare yourself, Right? That's what the purpose of the fear is. I have one of the mottos that I don't share with many people because I don't know if it's if it's that useful to others. But what helps me is I have a motto that says, if I'm not scared, I get scared. If that makes sense. So, so there's something that I'm preparing for, right? Yeah. And I'm checking my own emotional state, right? Uh, like, for example, this podcast, right? I, I, I speak all the time. But I, I, I test my own news because I realize that if I'm not scared, I'm not prepared. My mind is not tuned it to say, you better pay attention to this thing at hand because if you don't, you'll mess it up. And that's going to be embarrassing for you and the other side, right? So that's the one thing I think is fear was designed to ensure that we pay attention to what we're doing. That we that we realize some tasks are so substantial that we actually need to do some preparation, and that anxiety is there to help us to overcome the inertia and say, you know, I'm I'm getting ready for this big competition. This is a big thing. I better prepare, right? I haven't been training. I better go and prepare. But then there's another part of the fear that is protecting us from from killing ourselves, from dying, right? And that, that's not to prepare to do the thing. It's to say, don't do it, yeah. right? Don't do it at all. And a kind of a, an analogy that I, I use is to say that it's those type of events that when you look back on them, the fear was there to warn you that even if you succeeded at this thing, there would be a very small upside. And if you failed, there would be a huge downside. So yes. why the hell did you do it? Mm-hmm. Right? So so I think it's the, the, the fear, if we start distinguishing what the fear is trying to do is to say there's certain things that we really shouldn't be doing at all. Right? We shouldn't yeah. be preparing for them. We just, we should realize that this is real danger and that if we get it wrong and we haven't been practicing for 30 years, like walking on a tight rope, Right? then we we could die and that's what did I gain from this? Okay, so now I'm the the, the million person that walked a, on the tightrope between two buildings. Mm-hmm. So what? Right? Versus just saying that no, there's a fear that's helping me realize I need to prepare. Mm-hmm. So how would you say you one person can make the decision on what to do and what not to do, like which fear to kind of go for? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I mean, it's a very, very complex topic, right? Um, so one of the, the quotes that have inspired me throughout my life is one that I read very early on. Um, Jean-Baptiste Perrin was a, this famous physicist that was one of the first that approved some of Einstein's theories. And he said that the aim of all science, right? And whenever you're studying something, it's like science, right? So the aim of all science is to substitute visible complexity for invisible simplicity. Mm-hmm. So if you think about E equal to MC squared, the famous 
law that uh, Albert Einstein developed, right? It is beautifully simple. It's unbelievably simple, right? Three variables, energy, mass, and the, the speed of light. And it shows you how these three elements are related. And it can describe an incredible amount of complex phenomena. But that simplicity was never visible. What we saw was this enormous complexity, right? So the, the, the simplicity was always there. We just had to discover it. We had to substitute that visible complexity for this invisible simplicity. And I think the same thing is true with decision-making and the same thing is true with fears, is that ultimately there's some profound simplicity that we need to discover. What I discovered, and I think many others might have done the same, is that when you are facing a decision, and it's a really complicated decision, right? There's many, many factors that you have to consider. The most important factors to consider is best case and worst case scenario. So what you want to do is you want to go for an option that has a big upside if it works and a small downside if it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And you want to absolutely stay away from any option or decision or situation that has only a small upside if it works and a huge downside if it doesn't. You know, when, we, when I teach this at, at school level, I often use the example of to say, you're given an option to play two games, right? The lottery, right, which is like a gambling thing or playing Russian roulette. Which are you going to play, right? If you look purely at your, your probability of success, right, you're going to make the wrong choice. Because in the lottery, you have like one in a million chance of succeeding, right? Whereas with Russian roulette, you know, there's six chambers, one bullet, right? So you're five out of six chance of succeeding. So, so if you were purely looking at what's my probability of success, you'll go for Russian roulette. Mm -hmm. the, problem, the problem is not the probability of success or failure. It's with the impact of success or failure. Yeah. Right? Playing the Rotterly, if you win, it will change your life forever, right? And maybe your kid's life if you manage the money well. Yeah. What if you lost? Small downside, you lost a couple of bucks. Yeah. With Russian roulette, if you win, what the hell do you win? You stay alive. You were alive before you started, right? How did this help you? But if you lose, you lose quite an important part of your body that, you know, and it's that kind of... It's that type of thinking. So that's kind of what I teach, that inherent simplicity is to say, look, life is really complex, right? There's so many things that you have to consider. It can be overwhelming. And in fact, in most cases, it's not possible to accurately predict the likely outcome. But luckily, that's what, not what we need for decision making. We don't need to know the likely outcome. What we need to know is just the best case and worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean then when people say you need to take big risks in life in order to achieve big things? Yes. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the wrong lesson to mm -hmm. teach is that you should not be taking big risks if big risks implies the impact of the risk. Right? You shouldn't be doing something that can kill you. Mm -hmm. Right? That, that's... Uh, if there is a chance, if you are doing some extreme sport, you know, I used to, to do motorcycle racing. And of course, you know, it's very easy to die there. Right. But you do preparation. 
right? You are mentally preparing and your body, as soon as you get onto that motorcycle, you realize that if I'm not giving this task my full attention, right, I can die. It's the same with rock rock climbing, right? I, I once asked this uh, this lady rock climber that climbed these massive mountains, almost vertical, without rock ropes. And I was like, what's the potential upside for you in this? And she says, it teaches her brain to focus. Because mm. it's doing one of those things where you realize if you don't pay absolutely full attention, you will die, right? Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to the risk side, I think that for most practical purposes, if we if we think that risk means that there's a high probability of failing, but when I fail, the downside is quite small, I'll feel a little bit embarrassed, I'll lose a little bit of money, then absolutely, you should take risks all the time, as long as it just means that the downside is small. There's a high probability that you probably won't succeed, but not a big impact. You know, it's scientists do this all the time. You don't go into a laboratory building a prototype, coming up with a theory with an expectation that your first prototype will work. In fact, the opposite. If it did work, you're highly suspicious, right? <laughs> what the hell happened here? This is not normal, right? It's like Edison trying to invent a light bulb, right? There is no expectation that the first one is going gonna, is gonna to succeed, right? Um, but he kept on going. Why? Because he had a clear goal and he was making sure that every time he tried something, he was paying attention to what worked, what didn't. And he was learning all, every single time. And, and I think that mindset is really important when it comes to decision making. So we shouldn't be teaching kids to take big risks. What we should do is to teach them how to differentiate the type of risks within decision making. So if you are making a decision and it involves risk, but the risk is just that there's a there's a very good chance that you will fail. But if you did fail, okay, you'll be a little bit embarrassed. You might have wasted a couple of days or, or weeks or whatever, but there's no big downside. That's a risk that you should take as long as there's a big upside, right? You shouldn't be taking risks if there's no big upside for you or for the people that you care about. On the other side, don't do something that has a, a risk in terms of a really large downside impact. Mm -hmm. Like, I, you know, I am pivoting and my business used to do this and now I'm selling this and I actually have no intuition about the product or the service that I'm making. I don't understand the customers. I don't know how to get their attention. And as a result, it's going to fail. That's a really dumb decision because what, what is the big upside to this thing, Right. Small upside, big downside, don't do it. Big upside, small downside, absolutely don't do it. So basically calculated risks. It's, it's calculated risk, but I, gives it, I think hopefully it gives people a framework of what do we mean by calculated risk, right? Calculation doesn't mean that somehow you're magically going to get numbers and you're going to do some math and this is going to give you the answer, right? It's to say, first of all, accept that you can't accurately predict the outcome. It would be fantastic if we could, but you can't, right? That's just the reality. But what you can quite accurately predict is the best case and worst case scenarios. So, so use that as your way of deciding to say, is it worth it for me to drop this and do this? The only reason, the only valid reason would be that there's a big upside if it works and a small downside if it doesn't. So it's really interesting because um, – only recently, I would say within the past year, 
have I actually started being very mindful about the decisions I make from day to day? Because um, Trav would always tell me, like, gee, at the end of the day, like, your life is based on the decisions you make every single day. It's like almost like a fork road. You make this decision, you go that way. Then you make that decision, you go that way. And um, if you make all the little right decisions every single day, will that then be better for you to progress than taking those kind of risky decisions uh, or not? Uh, I mean, you can say common sense-wise, it sounds like a reasonable assumption, but uh, I think the reality is a little bit different. As we, we make about 35,000 decisions every single day. Jeez. So... I'm assuming a lot of that is subconscious. <laughs> not not a lot. The majority, by far the majority is. Sure. The, the problem is that we somehow think that we are thinking about it, right? What I'm eating, what I'm wearing, how I'm getting to work. All of those decisions are really in almost fully automatic mode. So now the question is, is if you make all of those decisions right, will that be helpful? No. Because most of those decisions don't matter that much. They might feel like they matter a lot at, at that moment if you were conscious of them, but in the bigger scheme of things, they don't matter a lot. But there's a few decisions that matter a lot. Getting them right or wrong can have a big impact. Okay. And I think that's a more useful way to say that, you know, when you think about your life, how many big decisions do you think you've made in your life that could have a profound impact on your life? Okay. Can you train that, though? I, I think you can train people to be aware of it, okay. right? So so I'll give you a practical example of it. So, um, I was given an opportunity to um, do an interview, right? And now the question is, okay, this is going to cost some effort, some preparation, maybe some money. Is it worthwhile doing this interview? And the, the way that I'm looking at it um, is – is there a big upside if it works mm. and a small downside if it doesn't? Mm -hmm. Or is it the opposite, right? Is there a small upside if it really works and a big downside if it doesn't? Mm -hmm. So this interview I'm talking about is I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Phil, right? Oh, cool. <laughs> Which is unbelievable, right? This is like, You're watching this guy on TV, right? And so I had an opportunity to interview them and actually we spoke about decision-making involving risk. And he shared with me that his conclusion, and he's also been studying successful people since he was a very young age. It turns out something that we have in common. And he said he realized that successful people take risks all the time, but they are never uh, reckless. Okay. They take risks all the time, but they are never reckless. And when I shared with him my definition of reckless, he said, absolutely. Reckless is making a decision that has a big downside if it doesn't work, right? You could destroy your reputation. You could destroy your relationship or your career or, or, or really harm yourself or somebody else. And there's almost no big upside. That would be reckless. Mm -hmm. Taking risks would be to say that I accept that there's a very good chance that this will fail. Mm -hmm. And it might be very uncomfortable. It ha might have some downside, but the downside is small. Mm -hmm. And as long as there's a big upside to compensate for that, then it's a good decision to make. 
And I think that we can teach. We can teach people from a young age these simple little rules. It's like a little kid standing there to dance, right? You're in school, you're in primary school, you're nervous like hell. There's this beautiful girl, she's called Giselle. You want to ask her to dance, right? You di- you're dying inside. Like, what must I do, right? And now the, the kid, to protect himself from the disappointment, doesn't ask, right? And what we can teach that little kid is to say, you know, what's the worst case scenario? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You walk over there, so play through your mind. You walk over there, you say, and, and I mean, she looks like she's not a nasty person. So probably the worst case scenario is she says, no, thank you. Yeah. Then you're alive. Right? You're still there. Yeah, you're still alive. It might feel at that moment like you're dying and you'll be really disappointed, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you'll, you'll walk back and you'll stand there. But you were there, right, to start off with. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> no big downside. But what if she said yes? Yeah. What if she said yes, you know? This could be life-changing. So I think getting back to there's a couple of things that I think we can teach, and it's a great question that you asked. We can teach we can teach from very young age how should we look at these decisions. Does it have a big upside for you and a small downside? That's a great go for it. Has a small upside, big downside for you or somebody else? Don't do it, mm-hmm. right? And then the second part is that you know what? Most decisions don't matter that much, but there's a few that there's a few that do. And those are the ones you really should think about. Okay. And thinking about this, what's the best case, what's the worst case scenario? Well, kind of just being mindful. and Because that's, that's kind of the pattern I see with some people around is that they, they just mindlessly do things sometimes. They're not very aware of what they're doing, what they're thinking. And yeah. um, we, I mean, there, there's so many great questions I can, I can ask you, but – uh, I think we might actually do, need to do another another chat to really sure. delve into that aspect. The one thing I wanted to ask you was, so you've met with people like Richard Branson and Dr. Phil, and they obviously, you know, both very su- uh, successful in their own right. Were there any major um, traits that you noticed from them that were different to other people? Um, little things, you know, the way they spoke about themselves, about other people, um, that's a that's a great question. I think that there's you know you could take somebody like Steve Jobs for example that was extremely successful. I've had the uh, privilege to meet people that have been very close with him. So Steve Wozniak that was the co-founder of Apple. I've met Mike Slay that was one of his very close advisors for a very very long period of time. And you know when you listen to them they that from a personal perspective. And, and there's been quite a bit written about it. Somebody like Steve Jobs, for example, he was really hard to work for, right? He had huge expectations and often very unrealistic expectations. And for the right person, that's exactly the environment that you need to go into because it will inspire you to do great things. But that's on the precondition that you respect this person, Right. When somebody else manages people with that level of almost, you know, fear, it can do exactly the opposite, right? So that style of management can only be successful as when people absolutely look up to you and respect you so much. You know, then you you have somebody that's 
opposite to that, like Richard Branson, that soft-spoken, very respectful. You, you, it's very difficult to imagine this person losing their temper, you know, and scolding an employee because they didn't perform, right? His mindset is very opposite. He's always looking at how to inspire them. You know, okay, we failed. Uh, I remember we were on on the, the uh, Mecca Island when he got a call to say that the you know the 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 rocket was about to launch. And the the previous event when that happened was there was a fatality. You know, very very unfortunate. And and just remember, his style was immediately to go there to be with the family, to be with the crew when when this horrible event happened, and immediately asking them, what do you think we should do? Should we stop the project? Should we go on? So I think that there's very different uh, almost management style or leadership styles between these very successful people, um, and that in the in the right environment, they can both be highly successful, right? But the one thing that they do have in common that I've seen is this absolutely single laser focus on what it is that they want to achieve. And I, I think it is that part that we, we almost started our, our discussion about that, right? It's the importance of having that clear goal because that's the thing that's, that's creating that inconsistency, right? And that under the right circumstances that can drive us, Right. Keep on reminding ourselves about that goal. And it was something very interesting. I've also had the privilege of working at some other very inspirational companies like Cisco Systems, their legendary CEO, John Chambers, and Microsoft with Bill Gates. And something that struck me is almost every engagement you have with them, they keep reminding everybody what's the goal. Right. This is what we're trying to achieve. The right. The purpose. This is what this is what we're going after. And I think that is that's definitely something that they all share. This is what we're trying to achieve. The same with Dr. Phil, right? He's got this huge team behind him, and there's this constant reinforcement of this is what we're trying to achieve in terms of what why we are here together. And I think that that's one, one thing that definitely all these great leaders have in common. They have a single focus in terms of what they want to achieve and they make it their duty to almost over communicate that constantly highlighting to everybody this is what we're trying to achieve and and i think to a large degree that helps when we have setbacks and they minor setbacks right because we can be very disappointed we can get frustrated when we have these minor setbacks but considering the long-term goal that we're trying to achieve then we realize actually they minor and it's part of the lessons. We we expected we didn't expect the first prototype to work, right? Exactly, but yeah. what we did expect to do is that prototype was built for purpose. The purpose was to test certain assumptions. And what we've gotten back is what worked and what didn't. And I think that mindset could be very useful, not just for athletes, but even in relationships, right? As I view Every decision I make as an experiment. I mean, I don't tell that to people because that might create the wrong impression. Yeah. <laughs> but in my, in my mind, it's an experiment, right? I had an expectation that this would be a good thing, right? That this could work. And now what I'm doing, because I'm conscious of the fact that this is kind of an experiment, I'm paying attention to what worked and what didn't so I can learn from it. 
Whereas, as you said, if you're just going mindlessly through life, things are just happening to you, you have this victim mentality, you're not going to be learning. And there's so many opportunities to learn what works and what doesn't. And the things that work, we need to double down and amplify those things. And the things that don't work, you know, we need to fix what's broken or just stay away from it. 100%. I mean, it's it's also interesting. And the one thing I really love is that everyone has the capability of doing that if they have the right tools, if they know about things like reflection and being mindful. And the one thing that you, you uh, mentioned about the focus is, again, really interesting. And we were talking about it before the podcast about, you know, athletes that, you know, you were talking about your experience in Singapore where you have athletes that are phenomenal in their career, in their athletic career. They they are successful by, by all means of where success can be measured, but then other aspects of their life are not so great. And, you know, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be successful? Like, you know, do, do, for you, does that mean that you've got all these accolades, you've, you've broken the records? Or for you, does it mean that you're good at what you do, but you have great relationships as well? You're happy? I mean, that's a very interesting, you know, thing. Yeah, it, it's something that I, I also found fascinating because there's this kind of uh, ob- objective of goal of people to have a balanced life, right? And so I, I started looking at very successful people from all walks of life. And I asked myself, how many of them would you rate as having a balanced life? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you think that there's any of these super successful people? Pick the field, whether it's athletics, whether it's you know academics, whether it's business entrepreneurship, whether it's corporate CEOs, whether it's politicians. Do you think that they have a balanced life? I think... I think it's um, it's kind of balanced, but certain things are a little bit higher than others. So maybe, you know, you, you prioritize your work a lot, but you still have time for family and for hobbies, but not as much as someone who, say, for instance, um, you know, was – just happy in their career and where that could maybe yeah. be more balanced, I think. So, so there, there were two lessons that I learned is that sometimes it's difficult to differentiate between a goal and a necessary condition, right? A goal is something that I want more and more and more of. It's kind of never enough, right? Uh, my goal is I, I want to help people see and unlock their inherent potential. I want to help them make better, faster decisions, There's no level of good enough there, right? I would help more and more and more and more people. But I know that that's my goal, but there's a couple of necessary conditions for me to achieve that goal, right? One of them is on the health side, right? Now, if I start confusing health as the goal versus a necessary condition, I'm going to end up spending way too much time in the gym, Right. Uh, And I'll I'll be super fit, but I wouldn't have made any impact on my real goal. Yes. So what I what I realized, which is a a very simple insight for me, was differentiate between what's your goal and what is a necessary condition. A necessary condition has a level of good enough. Mm. Below that, it becomes a distraction. Right. So if your health is not at at least that minimum level of good enough, 
it can actually harm you from achieving your goal. The ultimate harm is you end up dying before you could have made your contribution, right? But pay attention to, I almost see it like as an inverse U, mm-hmm. right? Any Nessie condition fits this sort of inverse U shape, right? Where on the left-hand side of that inverse U is too little, right? My health is not enough. On the right-hand side, it's too much. And then the level in the middle is sort of the Goldilocks zone is enough. Mm-hmm. So you need to think about that as, you know, my personal goal is about helping people see their potential, make better decisions. But I have other aspects of my life, right? There's the health part. There's the relationship part. There's the fun part. But I am very conscious about keeping those in the level of good enough. Not too little, but also not too much. And I think that's a useful framework to keep in your mind. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And, uh, you know, I think I can take the pressure off some people for thinking that they need to excel at everything. At everything. You can't. Yeah. But you, you need to, to have a target to say, I'm going to have this at least at the level of good enough. So, you know, if you, if you take a, a, a sports person, somebody that you work with all the time, I mean, they are training so much, right? They're traveling a lot of the time. Now, you can imagine if they are in a relationship with somebody that had an expectation that was viewing their their criteria of whether they are loved and respected as how much time the other person is spending with them, you're going to have a clash, Mm -hmm. right? Because for the one person, good enough means I'm giving you two hours a day of my full attention. Mm -hmm. The rest I'm training, right? And the other one has an expectation that that should be eight hours. You have a problem. Right. So I think it's, it's both important for yourself to clarify what is good enough for you, hmm. what is enough. And then if you are in a relationship to have those discussions, very frank discussions with people to say, OK, we're in a relationship together. There's a couple of things, you know, that we, we both want from each other, need from each other. What's that level of enough? And and please, if it's below that level that we agreed upon, please tell me, right? But at the same time, if it's more than that, also tell me. And and our job is just to keep our eye on the goal and to make sure that those necessary conditions stay in that little Goldilocks zone of just enough. Not too little, but also not too much. Because as soon as you have too much, it's it's occupying our scarcest resource, which is our limited attention, Right. And now I'm paying too much attention to relationships. You, you know, bitching and moaning that I'm not spending enough time with you. And now it distracts actually me achieving my goal. Yeah. So how important would you say then that you are happy in those other aspects in life in order to be successful in your goal? Yeah, I think it it, it depends on the individual of what is the level of enough for them, right? Okay. And, and and that's something as we, we apply this principle in business as well as I often give people advice to say, imagine you manage projects, right? There's typically three objectives in a project. You have to deliver on time, right? You have to deliver on budget and you have to deliver the full scope of the project. Those are three objectives, right? Unfortunately, sometimes the actions to take in order to be on time might cause me to go over budget or I have to cut the scope, right? So the question is, how do you resolve this? And the simplest way to resolve it is to say, 
is there one of those objectives that if I achieve it, will also help me to achieve the others? Okay. And in the project environment is if I can figure out what are the avoidable delays on the project and I can prevent those avoidable delays, it means that I also will achieve the others. I'll be able to deliver the product with lower cost and with, with the full scope. And I think somehow that also translates into my life, right? And we can apply this to our life as to say we have three necessary conditions, wealth, health, and happiness, Right. Which one are you picking to be your goal? Right? Wealth, health, or happiness, if we keep it really simple. So what, what I figured out, and that might not be true for other people, is that if I focus on doing something that I love doing, which is I call my work side, that's how I create wealth, right? Is I'm doing something that I'm super passionate about. Somehow that has a positive spin-off on my health. Mm -hmm. and on my happiness, yeah. right? Whereas somebody else might say, you know, as an athlete, I have to focus fully on my health. If I get that right, the wealth will come and the happiness will come. Yes, right? exactly. For, for somebody else, it might be I'm focusing absolutely on happiness, mm -hmm. right? And, and putting myself first and what makes me happy and then the other things will flow from it. So I think that's kind of one way of resolving this because we always have multiple objectives to achieve and often the actions to achieve one will compromise the other. So how do I resolve it? Is pick one that at least for that part of your life is your goal and really go after it, but make sure that if you are successful in achieving that, will it also positively impact the other aspects? It's very interesting because I just finished reading um, Victor E. Frankel's A Man's Search for Meaning. And mm -hmm. that's one of the things he said is that if you are just happy and if you are focusing on doing something that makes you happy, then the rest will kind of fall into place. Yeah. So it's, it's really amazing how, again, going back to that whole, you know, E equals MC squared things, like things can be so simple if you just kind of scrape away you know, all the... All that the, visible complexity. Exactly. It's it's simple, but it's hard, I think, sometimes yeah. to, to get there, which I think is amazing. Um, Alan, it's been so amazing chatting to you. Um, we definitely need to have another episode um, sometime because I absolutely loved picking at your brain and hearing you talk. It gave me a lot to think about, and I really learned so much from from chatting to you. Um, thank you, so thank, thank you. you so much, and thank you for the invitation. It was fascinating to talk to you about this. Of course, I mean, thank you so much for taking time out of your day um, to come and, and chat with me. And like I said, I really, really learned a lot, and I'll definitely have more questions to ask you. Um, so let me go and think about the things that I want to ask, and we'll definitely have uh, another recording soon. Super. Have a great day. Bye bye. Thank you too. Keep warm. Bye. Bye. <laughs>